What would you do for $249 right now? What would you do for a year's worth of priceless information? Turns out you don't have to do much. We're giving one lucky Energy Gang listener a free one-year subscription to our premium service, GTM Squared. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts and give the Energy Gang a rating and review. Give us a creative review. Have some fun with it. And in two weeks, at the end of the month, we'll choose our favorite. And that person will get a free subscription to GTM Squared. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Wonder is the leading commercial solar financier, according to numbers from GTM and Wood McKenzie. We track this space closely, and Wonder has jumped out in front, having already financed 100 megawatts of projects in the last few years. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com GTM. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. We are about to witness one of the most contentious and consequential bankruptcies in the history of energy. PG&E, California's biggest utility, is reeling from wildfire costs, and it is now headed to the courts, where it will likely be dismantled. Will it crush California's goals to clean up the electric grid? Or will lawmakers step in with a political fix of some kind at the risk of angering a lot of people whose lives have been devastated by wildfires? The stakes could not be higher. We're going to tackle the big questions raised by PG&E's spiral. Then, why are hundreds of liberal green groups shutting down every technology except wind and solar as part of the Green New Deal? We'll discuss a letter that has raised a lot of criticism and risks fighting among allies even before a real plan is considered in Congress. Then, I'm sorry to say it, folks, the Russians have likely already hacked your email. We're going to have a rundown of a terrifying story on the Wall Street Journal of how the Russians infiltrated dozens of utilities, allowing them to hide out inside the computer systems controlling the grid. Who knows? Maybe Russian intelligence is listening to us right now. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions, a public policy firm in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hey, how are you all doing? Good. So if the Russians were listening to us, what would you want to tell them? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Step away from the microphone. (laughs) Jigar Shah is back on the East Coast, just outside D.C. He is uh, the president of the investment firm Generate Capital. Hello, Jigar. Hey, how you doing? Good. What would you want to tell the Russians if they were listening in? You know, I watched a YouTube video of a bunch of uh, teenagers in St. Petersburg having a fireworks fight. So I would say do more of that. That sounds pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> our Russian listeners hate us. Our like five Russian listeners are uh, completely offended at this point. Well, if if the uh, the Russian intelligence agency is listening, guys, feel free to send some Twitter bots encouraging people to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, they can get a free Squared membership. Well, um, the fact that Russia's hacking of the grid is not our top story tells you everything about the importance of this first topic, PG&E's looming bankruptcy. The biggest utility in the world's fifth largest economy in the world has spiraled out of control. It faces up to $30 billion in wildfire costs from the 2017 and 2018 fire seasons, 10 times its current market capitalization. So yeah, this is a big deal. And it's also kind of confusing because it's so wrapped up in the state's climate goals 
and the future risks of wildfires are so damaging. So this bankruptcy proceeding has to take both those factors into consideration, which complicates matters. So here's how I want to break the conversation up. Uh, What happens to the utility now? Like, what are the proposals? What happens to renewable energy contracts and other programs for efficiency and EVs? How does this impact the state's broader climate goals? Will there be a political fix because of those important goals? And then what's the technological and operational fix uh, to prevent wildfire damage from destroying another utility? So there is an important technological element that we will get to hopefully at the end. But uh, mostly I think a lot of people are just kind of interested in the bankruptcy proceeding itself and what it means for such a massive utility like PG&E and then what it means for future bankruptcy proceedings. So let's just provide a very brief recap of how Pacific Gas and Electric found itself in this financial calamity. Uh, Catherine, can you give us a really quick overview? Yeah. So this is like the ninth largest bankruptcy since the 80s. So this is a huge deal. It's a it's a big one. Um, and there's been a long and sordid history with PG&E from the Enron days in, in 2000-2001, where PG&E and SoCalEd was, were all wrapped up in that. Then, So there was no love loss for PG&E for a long time. Um, in 2009, when the Recovery Act gave a cost share program to PG&E to do smart meters, I don't know if you remember, but people were lying down in front of the metering trucks because they didn't trust PG&E to install meters that didn't control their brains. Um, and then in in 2010, there was the San Bruno gas pipeline explosion that killed eight people. So they've they've already had a pretty winding and uh, torturous relationship with their consumers and with other issues. And then in in the last two years, these wildfires, $30 billion that SB 901 that passed in California would give bonding authority to share that cost with the customers. But that doesn't even count the latest round of campfire and those other fires that they're, they can be found liable without being found negligent. So there was at one point an issue of are they going to be found? Are they going to be found? Are they going to be accused of murder? And that may not be the case. But they're in a load of trouble, and it's hard to know how, given the escalating cost of these fires. And it's not like the fire season is not going to come back. Just like hurricanes aren't going to stop. I mean, there will be another fire season. So the issue is like. They can't absorb these costs now, and they have lots of other obligations, including 29% of the off-taking from Con Ed contracts. So this is a huge deal for not just PG&E and the citizens of California in their service ter- territory and the whole state, but elsewhere as well. Yeah, and this that's the wildfire thing. That's what makes this so different from the 2001 bankruptcy because there was a market and political fix and then assuming that, you know, the utility and others adhere to certain rules, you you can kind of tie up the problem. Uh, you know, ultimately they had to pass a lot of money like costs on to ratepayers, but it's an isolated problem given what they dealt with there in California. This is an ongoing issue. And so they not only have to work their way through this bankruptcy proceeding, but They need to prepare the utility to manage wildfires and figure out how to fix operations so that they're prepared for this and not as liable. So, Jigger, what happens to the utility now? Like, as we work our way through bankruptcy proceedings, what could potentially happen to PG&E? There's a lot of proposals out there. Well, I think it's important to start with the fact that PG&E has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, not Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And so they're not saying that they 
can't pay their bills and that they need to be dissolved as a company. They're saying that if they were protected from their current liabilities and they were given some time to figure out what the next steps are, that everyone would probably get paid back more money than if they were dissolved. And so PG&E is saying that they are going to come out of this and they're going concern as a company, which I think is important to state. So I, I think that the real question is what model of um, PG&E does the state want to see uh, when it emerges from bankruptcy? And I think there's a few things that we should be clear about is I think that leaving PG&E intact, which is what happened really after the 2002 bankruptcy, is probably not an option this time around. I think there's just so little trust in the area that it's probably not going to be allowed to stay in place. So there's a couple of models here. So when Long Island Power Authority um, basically bankrupted itself through the the unbuilt nuclear plant, they uh, turned themselves into a public authority, right? And the public authority's job was to basically figure out a way to pay off the old bonds from the nuclear power plant and some other things. When, you know, in PG&E's case, that I think is a distinct possibility that the state actually takes over PG&E and makes it into a public entity. So I think that's one choice. Another choice is for PG&E to get broken up into to public utility districts like you have in Washington State. And, you know, in that case, Gavin Newsom really wanted to municipalize uh, San Francisco when he was mayor. So I, I, I think that that's probably another thing that's on the table. And then the other variations that I see is that PG&E may be stripped of its innovation, right? So you can imagine on the climate change side, they, they could just say to PG&E, you're really just in charge of risk management now. And all the innovation, energy efficiency programs, renewable energy procurement will all be done through a third party that we're going to create. Which one do you think is most attractive? Uh, I think breaking them up is probably best. Um, you know, I think that's probably how you manage the wildfires the best is you have, you know, dedicated smaller utilities who's who actually prioritize um, the risk management issues in, in those areas. I, I think that PG&E is just so big and covers so much territory that they're just not capable of of managing the risks across their entire region. Yeah, and the, if you recall, in the 2003 settlement, the California Public Utility Commission voted three to two not to break it up into four smaller companies, but I think we're in a pretty different place right now. So, like, let, let's say, you know, PG&E is municipalized, localized. How does that intersect with this movement in California to develop community choice aggregation, to support local control of utility infrastructure. Um, it seems to dovetail nicely with that movement there in California, but it also, of course, presents risks to municipal governments if they're controlling this infrastructure and something horrible happens. Like, how does this play into the existing movement with CCAs and what, what would those risks be? So, you again, you have a model for this already, right? That's basically what NIPA does in New York, right? So NIPA is a big utility company, owns a lot of hydro, owns a lot of transmission. Um, but they do a couple things. One is they they supply power to almost all the public entities in New York. Uh, so that includes, you know, city governments in upstate New York to school districts to other things. But separately, they support um, municipal utilities throughout New York State, most of whom are basically a skeleton crew that just... Um, 
functions like a CCA. So they're not really a municipal utility that, you know, fixes all their lines and does all the work um, that you would expect a municipal utility like Austin Energy or CPS to do. So you could see something like that where PG&E does just fully embrace its role as a wholesale power provider and and uh, manager of transmission lines and distribution lines. And, you know, it really allows the CCAs to to take a bigger role in the minds of the consumer as their local utility company. So, Jigger, then who becomes creditworthy to be the off-taker um, of PPAs for renewables? Well, this is why I think th- that you're going to see the state of California turn them into a public entity, right? And so then it becomes the state that really becomes the balance sheet. Because, I mean, the, the thing that I think people just don't want to talk about in the utility sector is that the investor-owned utility model doesn't work. In fact, has been so broken that systematically IOUs charge 20% more on a like-to-like basis than public entities do for power. So when you have a 20% systematic difference between the rates of public power entities and investor-owned utilities, it means the investor-owned utilities are literally gouging consumers. What happens to contracts through bankruptcy proceedings? That seems to be one of the biggest questions that people in the clean energy community have. Uh, PG&E, I think, has the most PPAs of any IOU in California for solar, and it has the highest average PPA price at $140 per megawatt hour uh, because it signed a lot of contracts many, many years ago when, of course, solar was a lot more expensive. And it has some, you know, a solar thermal PPA as well. Um, These are numbers that are coming from Credit Suisse, by the way. They did a really nice job summarizing a lot of the uh, the, the, the implications for BPA pricing in, uh, in PG&E's territory. And so this is a really uh, good place to pay back creditors, right? Like they, they could renegotiate these PPA contracts, get them down to current market prices, and find a lot of money there. And of course, that could be really bad for renewable energy project owners. Uh, but I presume there will be a lot of fights around whether or not those contracts get negotiated because they, of course, could hurt California's renewable energy goals. Uh, so like, how is that all playing together? I think that there's a lot of confusion around what happens to these contracts. Well, I, I don't know that there's confusion as much as there's deliberate sort of you know, misreading of facts. Or but just uncertainty, um, right? There could be a number no, of No, there's no directions. uncertainty. I mean, that's the stupid thing about this, well, right? So they are going to renegotiate then? No, there's a 100-year uh, precedent for not vacating contracts. Literally, it's never been done before. The only thing that the Credit Suisse memo tries to refer to is a b- ass-backward contract that Merritt signed. I don't know if you remember this, but like, Merrant basically bought all of the generation assets of Pepco in the DC area. And as part of that purchase, Pepco had to go to the previous counterparties and get the contracts assigned to Merrant. Two of the counterparties said that they would not allow the assignment of the contracts to Merrant because Merrant had a weaker credit than Pepco did. And so Merrant was doing a back to back purchase where Pepco would buy the purchase, buy the power from the counterparty, and then sell it to Merrant at the same price. And that is the contract that got vacated by the 5th District. That has nothing to do with 
these renewable energy contracts. I mean, going back 100 years, the Supreme Court has said that these contracts are absolutely sacrosanct and that as long as they're done in a straightforward and forthright manner and the public, you know, was protected when they were approved, um, they're not going to get renegotiated. So I honestly think that it's it's derelict in their duty for, you know, stock analysts and reporters to even talk about this stuff. Wait a second. Hold on. It didn't First Energy. The First Energy has been trying to renegotiate solar contracts as well as part of its bankruptcy proceeding. Now, didn't they... Weren't they able to renegotiate some of those contracts? Yeah. Absolutely not. And that's going through that's making its way through the Sixth Circuit. So that that Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling said that bankruptcy courts don't have the jurisdiction to change the rates of a FERC wholesale power negotiated wholesale power contract, but they can vacate it altogether. They could reject it. The bankruptcy court can. Um, but what that did was like give some negotiating tools to, um, you know, and kind of a threat that will just vacate it altogether, which I don't think they would do, but it does give them some ability to renegotiate, I would think. So then let's broaden this a bit and talk about how a dismantling of PG&E and the uncertainty around its 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 operations and who owns these assets, what the contracts look like. How does that fit into the state's broader climate and energy goals? Um, will this disrupt California's ability to meet its targets, both in renewable electricity and in EV deployment and energy efficiency? Any thoughts on on where this fits in? Well, my own sense is that that you know it's probably going to be net positive. I, you know, I think I mean the notion that PG&E has really been an extraordinary partner in all of this is a little laughable. I mean, when you think about what has happened in the last 20 years. It's kind of shocking, don't you think, that PG&E doesn't have an unregulated subsidiary that rivals Con Ed, you know, Con Ed or Dominion or Southern Company or um, Nextera in terms of owning these assets? I mean, they just, they haven't really done that. There was this one like $60 million loan that they tried to do with Sunrun and then the next CEO decided not to do it. And so they haven't really led on the unregulated side. Even on the unregulated side, I'd say it's really been more of like a an uneasy alliance with NRDC and some of the other environmental groups where PG&E says, fine, we'll do whatever you want us to do, but only if we get this in return. So my sense is... That sounds like normal business practices to me. Yeah, but my sense is this is quite disruptive for the people who are experts at the PG&E process now and may have contracts pending, and I feel bad for the delays that they're going to have there. But I think in the long term that, you know, one of the reasons for the restructuring of PG&E will be to supercharge their ability to decarbonize, decentralize um, the utility faster and actually be a beacon of what's possible. Yeah, it seems to me that if you can shift to either a municipal structure or allow the CCAs to be able to increase their credit ratings and lower their costs of debt, that you're going to get more PPAs, more long-term profitable PPAs through those entities than you currently have through PG&E. Jigger, I, I do have to take issue with your characterization of PG&E. So obviously your stance on utilities is very clear and utilities, even the mo- the ones that are considered the most progressive, have done a lot to kind of drag their feet on certain issues. But look, PG&E has, I think they have the most rooftop solar in the country. I could be wrong, but at one point they had the most rooftop solar in the country. They still could hold that 
number. They've done a lot to deploy electric vehicles, and they're developing this whole new electric vehicle charging and management uh, project. And I don't know how that's going to get derailed due to this bankruptcy proceeding, but that was a huge priority going into this year. They're developing Moss Landing. Again, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but one of the biggest battery storage projects in the world. So to sit here and say that PG&E has not been an ally uh, in this fight is, I think, just wrong. Um, so Wrong? I, I mean, every one of the programs that you just discussed is mandated by law. So, okay, fine that they're not lawless, you know, a lawless corporation. They follow the <laughs> laws that are passed by the state of California. But to suggest that they're doing this voluntarily is ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, I just think that when you think about PG&E and where it's at, just remember PG&E has been raising rates since the 1990s at a rate of 5% a year. Just soak that in for a second, right? Think about how much you have to fleece your customer to increase rates by two or three times the rate of inflation to be able to have one of the highest electricity rates in the country, right? I mean, and, and then then say to yourself, is that what you would put forward as the ideal utility, right? The one that we all want to copy. And then separately say to yourself, are you saying that you think PG&E is actually being helpful in basically converting all the buses in its territory to electric, converting all of the moving vans and work trucks that like, you know, FedEx and UPS are looking at, you know, to electric? Are they really moving to the shared economy and figuring out exactly how we actually make um, full Dan Sperling's, you know, sort of vision that we had on the podcast here. No way. I mean, there's been four years, five years maybe of conferences. Every conference ends with the same thing, which is that um, PG&E should rate-based batteries. Like, that's the conclusion that every single one of these conferences comes out at. Guess who rate-based batteries first? Duke Energy last week with Workhorse. PG&E has never rate-based a battery for electric vehicles. Even after five years of every conference saying, that's the best idea that came out of this conference. And so I just, I don't give people credit because I, like I and many other people are really good at manipulating, you know, like regulations. Like I give them credit for actually showing leadership to like actually say something that they're not obligated to say. Catherine, I know we have so much to work through. And it's really hard to speculate at this point. But um, based on like who you're talking to and, and, and the analysis that you've seen, will an equal amount of good come out of this uh, as bad? I mean, it sounds like Jigger is saying that, you know, a lot of good could come out of this. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, wh where you fall on that matter. Yeah, I am most worried about the next fire season and what's going to happen and are they going to get technologies in place that will prevent these catastrophic fire wildfires from the utility system. And so whatever they do, you know, I realize that we have to um, abide by all of California's um, greenhouse gas regulations and that is a huge piece of what's moving forward from policy with, with them. But the wildfire issue is not going to go away, and that's something we just have to figure out. And whether it's through, you know, giving them dispensation to do other kinds of technologies, giving grants to um, critical facilities, or you know, other businesses to do microgrids, I 
we have to we have to address that issue because to me that is that's the biggest problem that's going to be facing us in the next few months. That's such a great point, Catherine. One thing I will say though um, is that in the same way that I feel like we shouldn't rebuild coastal communities after they get destroyed by hurricanes and rising sea levels, I hope they don't rebuild all these homes in the middle of forests. You know, the West is supposed to burn on a regular basis. And so these wildfires are not going to go away. And some of these communities were permitted in the absolute wrong places. And so I hope some of those communities don't get rebuilt. Jigger, talk more about the technological fix here. So Catherine's right that it's not going away. In fact, it's going to get way worse. I mean, we are seeing the impacts of climate change right now. And, you know, operators of infrastructure like this should be very scared. And I'm sure the other California utilities are very scared and thinking, you know, a lot about how they avoid these problems. So so what's the technological fix here? And, you know, I know we touched on it on a previous podcast when these wildfires first happened, but you recently wrote an op-ed at The Hill that was quite good, looking at the amount of money we would need to spend on distributed microgrid infrastructure and also on technologies to monitor lines and shut them off faster before they start wildfires. What's that mix of technologies you see and what's the amount of spending that we would need to, reasonable amount of spending that we'd need to see to start to address this problem? Well, I mean, Catherine knows a lot more about this than I do, so I'm happy to have her weigh in on this too. But I, you know, I think that, you know, the one technology that I really focused on was sinker phasers where, you know, SDG&E has them installed where it it de-energizes the line before the line actually hits the ground, right? It's so fast that when it knows that, it, that there's something that's gone wrong, it actually de-energizes so fast that it can't spark, you know, kindling on the ground. And those are technologies that have been around for a long time. SDG&E's rolled it out to a lot of their territory. And so it's something that pg has just taken a long time to do, even though it knew that the technology would actually save lives. I think on the microgrid side, um, you know, I think we've all talked about microgrids a lot and it's been around, um, you know, and it's gotten more mature. The biggest problem with microgrids in general has been acceptance by pu- the public, right? I mean, for a long time, the public has, you know, believed that, the utility company was serving it well, and so therefore they didn't need to move to these more extreme, you know, sort of solution sets. But now that these wildfires are so persistent, I think that a lot of the people who live in these communities are saying, yeah, like if we could actually just cut ourselves off largely from the utility and build a microgrid here to serve our community, that's something we're more open to than before. And it's quite cost effective. I mean, today you can build a natural gas, um, you know, sort of anchored microgrid for, you know, delivered power at less than 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's it's not like this stuff is super expensive. And even if you didn't want to include natural gas, you could probably do it for probably 14 or 15 cents a kilowatt hour delivered. Yeah. Part of the issue was the business model for microgrids. And I think that that issue has been mostly resolved. I was talking to one microgrid developer yesterday, actually, and and uh, they're developing a, you know, a, a, a plug and play is probably the wrong word, but a repeatable solution for uh, you know hospitals and critical infrastructure, specifically to serve states like California that are dealing with wildfire crises. And the wildfires, this this feels like the the watershed moment after 
the uh, Aliso Canyon natural gas leak that spawned all these policies in California promoting localized battery storage. And and it kick-started a massive amount of battery projects there in California and then encouraged other states to follow suit. Th- this wildfire crisis and the PG&E crisis and the, fo- the focus on uh, resilient localized solutions alongside maybe a carve-up of PG&E also feels like a watershed moment for things like microgrid development. Am I am I stepping over my skis a bit, or does does that feel right to you? Well, it's a it, it's you know it's the right confluence of events for microgrids, right? I mean, I think that microgrids have really come down in cost. They've become fairly widespread, frankly, at military bases and lots of other places. And you've got large corporations from you know Southern Company to uh, Riverstone, which is a very large private equity firm, to others who are investing heavily in the space. And so, you know, my sense is that they were working on the technology and really getting it to sort of the four, five, nine, six, nines of resp- of reliability. And, you know, these weather events have now caused a lot of the customers that they were talking to, to, you know, rethink the pitch that they heard previously. Okay. Well, finally, I guess I just want to put the bankruptcy into perspective historically, or, or perhaps um, looking forward. So, Jigger, I know you believe that there are many more bankruptcies coming for utilities for much different reasons, not necessarily because of wildfire or extreme weather risk, but because of other financial calamities. So, so how does PG&E's bankruptcy inform how you see other utilities getting dismantled in your worldview? Well, I think the reason why California and New York uh, – lead the way in many ways, Texas obviously as well here, um, is because there's just so many damn smart people, right? I mean, the number of smart people in the governor's office, number of smart people is on the on the utilities commission, the number of smart people in the mayor's offices and in the CCAs and other things are just overflowing. And then when you add the environmental groups and others who are going to weigh in, you're going to have an extraordinarily informed process, right? And so as you go through this bankruptcy, I think you will see many of the ideas that we came up with, but lots of other ideas as well that are proposed that try to understand how to really start to bring better into balance the role of the electric utility company, not only in providing reliable electricity, but also in decarbonization and making sure that there's an equitable and fair solution that that covers all the communities. And I think Whatever the solution set is that comes out of this particular proceeding, I think you will see a lot of other states look at it when their utilities face financial difficulties and they're getting asked to be bailed out by the state. You know, whether they go through a bankruptcy or not is sort of a little bit beside the point, right? I mean, you know, once a utility hits some sort of negative financial calamity like Nevada Power, you know, whose whose bond ratings were slash to junk in 2004 or, you know, like Santee Cooper or some of these other utility companies, the regulators have a lot of power. And at that point, if they wish to use that power to implement some of these solutions, they actually will have the chance to do so. Yeah, I would just say I don't think it has to do with that those states have any smarter people than anybody else, because I think there are smart people everywhere. But I do think it is the confluence of state government leadership and public policy and, and commitment to their policies, the confluence of that with business interests 
and customer demand. People want this. So I think those three things combined have moved some states like California and New York faster than others, but we we can do this anywhere. Well, we're witnessing business history here, folks. Coming up, why are Enviro's so myopic? Plus, we get Russian code names. First, do you have a community solar project that needs financing? Are you frustrated by traditional financiers' slow processes and inflexible offerings? Well, our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. Wonder just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders can't. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake. In addition, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, subscriber FICO scores, they aren't required. Head on over to wondercapital.com gtm to submit your community solar projects today and get community solar shares to more people faster. And as always, Wonder can help with your commercial solar projects too, providing loan terms within two business days. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. I want to touch on a familiar debate that came to a head this week. How much do we depend on renewables only for a decarbonization strategy? I'm bringing it up because of a letter sent to Congress this week signed by over 600 environmental groups. It outlined their demands in a Green New Deal. And I'm calling it a Green New Deal finally, folks. I think last week I called it a New Green Deal multiple times, not even really realizing it. And I got called out by a bunch of people. So Green New Deal. Um, And that letter included this language, quote, any definition of renewable energy must also exclude all combustion based power generation, nuclear, biomass energy, large scale hydro and waste to energy technologies. It immediately raised strong criticism, including from me. Boy, you should have heard my rantings on a phone call about this. My my dog actually walked out of the room because of the tone of my voice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Why would they include such restrictive language? Um. At a time when emissions are going back up while renewables are exploding, are they considering the whole picture? No, not in in my opinion. Um, Anyway, this is clearly a negotiating document, and it's probably not a surprise that um, many of these farther left enviro groups signed it. But still, we're in the weeds here on this podcast, so we can't let this kind of language slide without some discussion. Now, uh, I don't want to speak for my co-host here, so I want to get your reactions to this vision for the Green New Deal. Catherine, your response first. Yeah, so I do not see it as a negotiating document. I see it as an organizing document. There's 626 groups on. There are grassroots. It shows an amazing amount of support for doing something on climate. Uh, I think that you see that the that the elephant in the room is that the major environmental groups like Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund, NRDC, Climate Reality Project, Environment America. Moms Clean Air Force and Next Gen, Tom Steyer's group. None of those folks signed on. There's a reason for that. That Some of it has to do with the nuances of what they say. But the good news, and I reached out to all of those groups, the good news is that there are people who are really fired up about this issue and are going to hold their elected officials accountable. And I see this as a grassroots document, not as this is the legislative uh, proposal that we have. Okay, so they're talking to themselves then, you mean? Or they're talking to their their base supporters, the people who are going to give them money, galvanize support, put boots on the ground. That's that's what you're saying. Well, it's like the 350. It's it's Bill McKibben's vision, right? So the big environmental groups, they have to take their proposals to their boards. They have to vet them. 
Remember, Environment America was talking about 100% renewables back in 2008 before anybody else did. So it's not like they're not in on the basic principles, these large organizations, but there's some things in it that kind of aren't don't make any sense. And they're like you said, some of the exclusion language on technologies that, you know, it could it could exclude things that really would make sense. The other piece that is that it says that it opposes any legislation that promotes corporate schemes that place profits over community burdens and benefits, including market-based mechanisms and technology options like a carbon and emissions trading and offset. So all that says oh, we can't do Reggie, we can't do FERC rulemaking processes, we can't, guess what, get climate wealth <laughs> accrual, as Jigger likes to say. So, you know, there are a lot of things in it that are very purist in nature. And I think, you know, in addition to the vetting and that large groups take a longer time to make decisions, I think there's some things in it that you don't want to hold anybody's feet to the fire on. This is, I don't see it as like, these are the particulars that they're going to write up in legislation, but this, that this is a good organizing start. What in the actual hell? Jigger, what is your response? Well, I, look, I think that this is something that um, we've talked about in the past, right? Which is that the forward progress that we require in these areas comes from grassroots support. And I think that, you know, the large environmental groups in general have, you know, largely been, you know, very cerebral about everything and says, oh, you know, we should make sure we don't say anything that, you know, we don't 100% believe now because it'll come back to bite us later in a negotiation. And, you know, some of the real power that comes from these viral efforts that, you know, the Sunrise Movement and others have been pushing comes from the fact that they're not cerebral and they're more from the gut. And, you know, they're just, you know, a bunch of people who are just so mad about the fact that their futures are being stolen from them, right? And I, I don't fault them for that level of um, pain and anguish that, you know, that drives them to write these kinds of letters and to, you know, protest and to get in the offices and do this stuff. And I don't think that it makes them any less effective or, you know, or um, important to the movement. So like, I, I feel like in some ways, the environmental groups, you know, really screwed up on this one and should probably have, um, you know, figured out a better way of contributing to the process than, you know, basically this sort of parental condescending, you know, condescending sort of approach that they've taken here. I think it is condescending or, you know, it's, it's myopic. It's look, I can simultaneously believe that the Sunrise Movement and some of these groups that are supporting 100 percent renewables are doing a good to push this into public public consciousness. Like, I believe that that messaging has started to have an impact and it's very important. But this letter was loony bins. I mean, th this is just so divorced from reality. I understand. I do believe, Catherine, your characterization is correct, that this is a galvanizing document for the movement itself. But the idea that they are pushing this type of limited view of a decarbonization strategy is insane. It is so divorced from the reality of the problem right now. It really makes me upset. So I can simultaneously sort of see their value and be uh, upset and borderline angry about this kind of characterization. 
So I was in a meeting yesterday at the World Bank where I was moderating a panel and Rachel Kite uh, was keynoting that panel and she is the head, the CEO of Sustainable Energy for All under the UN Secretariat um, and an amazing global leader on clean energy uh, and decarbonization. And she said the IPCC report provides us a perverse opportunity, but we should be on an emergency footing. And I think that this letter it rea- is reacting to that need and that call for action, which is we need to be on an emergency footing. Boy, we need to do a lot and we need to do it fast. So I do not want to patronize this whole debate about you know what's in it specifically. I do think that the large environmental groups are not dragging their feet at all. If you read Ben Beachy's comments in the Sierra Club, he has a blog and he talks about five big new ideas for a green the Green New Deal – and any touches on infrastructure and building efficiency and manufacturing and a civil conservation core like thing, the green brigade and climate friendly farming. I mean, they are looking at real solutions too. So I just, I don't think that there's that much difference. I think the details will be hashed out on a bunch of different levels. I'm really glad that there are people who are fired up about this. And I think that we will have people who come up with legislative language that will work, but there is no sense in us negotiating against ourselves right now in public. If I was to do all of this myself, I would do it a different way. I get it. But, you know, like, look, I'm getting older now. There's a new generation of young people, some of which are like 15 years old, who are like, you know, leading school walkouts across Scandinavia to like get people to understand this is a really important issue. And if they are going to be really animated and get thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people to back their vision, like, I mean, who am I to be like, oh, you know, I used to walk uphill both ways in the snow when I was younger. Why don't you just do it in a more measured and controlled way? No, they they should do it their way. And I'm happy to see it. And we should be supporting them. I, I hear you. And I, I do actually support that sentiment. And I don't want to sound like a scold because I know that a lot of the people who are supporting this movement are uh, a different, younger generation. And I'm not trying to sound like that. I'm just begging many of the people who are involved in this, who I'm sure listen to this podcast, to reconsider. Look at the emissions numbers that just came out in the U.S. U.S. emissions, CO2 emissions rose 3.7% last year, even while we put records amount, record amounts of renewable energy on the grid. So when you look at these numbers and then compare this policy solution, it's like, you know, having your house be on fire and someone shows up with a fire truck, a fire hose, their axe, their oxygen tank and everything. And you say, nope, nope, we're just going to use the axe now. Um, we need everything possible to solve this problem. And, you know, the, this kind of policy measure or proposal does not match even close the scope of the problem. This is not going to lay the found. This will give the organizing tool and the galvanizing piece, but the legislation will will have a lot of iterations and a lot of people like some of the major enviros like the Sierra Club and EDF and NRDC and those and Environment America are all going to be in the room helping to come up with solutions that work. Okay, well, I think that wraps up. Uh, I just got a Fitbit this week, you guys, and I started this segment off at uh, 50 beats per minute with my heart rate, and now I'm up to 100. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad I don't have one of those bad boys. 
Who knows what happens if the Russians hack into my Fitbit? Good Lord. We're going to get code names for this last segment. Catherine, you're Dragonfly. Jigger, you're Energetic Bear. Those are um, <laughs> those are actually the real code names for the Russian missions to hack the electric grid. So so let's let's actually just end with a description and discussion of this remarkable piece of journalism from the Wall Street Journal about the Russian hacks of the electric grid from 2016 to 2018. Between that period, up to 60 utilities were hacked, and now federal authorities say those hackers are probably still hiding out in computer systems waiting to pounce when the moment is right. Uh, One need only look at the crippling cyber attack on Ukraine's grid in 2015 to envision the consequences. The hacking problem isn't new. Um... Authorities went public with the problem last year, but this Wall Street Journal piece looked at how the hack occurred. And it's really an impressive piece of writing. And it shows how the run of mill, uh, how, how run of mill these hacking methods are. They just rely on phishing emails largely designed to pique people's curiosity. So in this case, the hackers targeted super small engineering firms that contract with utilities up the chain. And they slowly but surely reeled in more fish as the emails got passed around. And eventually, the hackers found their way into control rooms. Catherine, as a former utility engineer yourself, what terrified you most about this story? Yeah, exactly that, that you can get into. There are hundreds of contractors and subcontractors for utilities for of all types and for you know military operations. And the fact that you could get in from a very a small company and use that and the relationships that that has, it's like it's like the phone web chart that you know everybody calls ten people and then those people call ten people. Like being able to do that was uh, was really astounding because you know from the from the top down the utilities have a really strong system that could probably be stronger, but at least they have a system with standards and rules and laws in place to protect the grid. But this is a this is coming from a completely different place. And I think that's what's terrifying. I'm standing here in a puddle of tea. I got so animated in our last conversation, I spilled tea all over the floor and my socks are all wet too. <laughs> anyway, Jigger, uh, how should we be worried about this kind of lurking danger? You know, it's it's one of those things where I don't really understand, um, you know, how to feel about these things anymore, right? I mean, it's not just the utility industry that's easily hacked, right? We had our election easily hacked. And so um, I think we're sort of in this weird situation right now where the tools of sort of, you know, of wealth creation and access to information and ability to do things at a faster clip, et cetera, are being used against us and the corporations that we rely on to keep us safe, like General Electric or Siemens or Schneider Electric or others, haven't been able to sort of crack the code and figure out exactly how to make all of the infrastructure robust and, you know, and and prevent them from being hacked. And so, you know, very simple sort of human foibles are, you know, being uh, sort of used to to get into these systems, right? And I, I and I wonder sometimes whether the utility companies are even capable of actually keeping us safe in this way, or whether we actually need to somehow create an external organization that is sort of you know uh, tied into the Department of Homeland Security to to figure this stuff out. We have that. 
We have two of those already. <laughs> um, I can tell you about those. So one is NERC, which is the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which started in 1962 and over 45 years went through the blackouts of 65, 77, 96, 2003. And over those 45 years, finally got enough legally enforceable reliability standards in place um, overseen that are overseen by FERC um, to really manage reliability. And they also took on, um, in 2008, their first critical infrastructure protection standards. So what they do is they do risk assessment, standards development, compliance enforcement, and the dissemination of information to all of their members. And this covers all of the grid in North America, and that includes Canada. So, and I think they're starting to work with Mexico as well. So there is an entity, this NERC, that does do that. And just in 2018, in November, President Trump signed into law the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act of 2018 that created an agency under the Department of Homeland Security, which deals with cybersecurity and infrastructure security. Unfortunately, the Department of Homeland Security is on shutdown, but there is an agency that still needs to have someone confirmed to run it, but it will be there to, to manage exactly this sort of thing. So I understand what you're saying, Catherine. I, I agree that those organizations are in charge of assessing the threat and then creating standards to implement it. But then you still have to push the implementation down to over 2,000 electric utility companies in the United States. And I'm wondering whether I can trust those 2,000 electric utility companies to actually have the capabilities to do a good job of meeting the standard. Yeah, and I, I agree. That's that is a huge question. And the issue in this particular story is it's like if you're if it's so disaggregated all of all of the relationships that even the smaller utilities have of service providers and getting into those, it's it's a whack-a-mole. Like how do you then address it? So what what are the systems you need to put into place? Or do you just I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I don't know how you would do it in a in a very disaggregated way. In a way. <laughs> We're kind of talking past the point. What what was really scary about this Wall Street Journal article was that it was plain vanilla phishing, right? I mean, uh, utilities have put a lot of security protocols in place. NERC has been working on this issue. And to a large degree, the utility industry has been aware of these problems and have tried to uncover them for a long time. But like, you're only as strong as your most gullible employee. And if the wrong phishing email comes in and one person with the right username and password enables you to get into the system and then move your way up the value chain and then into a major utility, that's that's all you need. And and all of these attacks really stemmed from very straightforward uh, phishing schemes. You know, when, when uh, Wood McKenzie acquired Green Tech Media, we all had a bit of a chuckle over the security protocols that we went through because a lot of them were focused on you can, you are a human firewall. And it's kind of a funny saying, right? It's like Smokey Bear, you only you can prevent forest fires. But it's totally true, right? I mean, we, we the people within a company are the ones who often let this stuff in. Yeah, and generally utilities have two separate networks. So they have the corporate network and then they have the critical control network. And these folks will get in through the corporate network and figure out what they call a jump box into the critical control network. And and often they'll just sit there and wait until they're told to act. So we don't even know where all of this is. And I think Department of Homeland Security is certainly trying to monitor it and figure it out. Sometimes they rely on some of these companies like this small business to report this that they had taken over this guy's email so that when he said and he went when somebody 
wrote him a note and said, uh, is this fake? He he wrote back and said, no, it's not. You can click on it. Well, it wasn't even him that said that. So, yeah. you know, it's that right. kind of thing that relies on people. That, uh, <sighs> yeah. So scary. <laughs> just ugh, the idea of someone else answering my emails or pretending to be me or just lurking like that. It's, uh, it never fails to creep me out. So uh, just to wrap this up, have either of you changed your behavior? or What are you aware of most given these types of problems? Is there anything kind of organization-wide that you do that could apply to utilities or this problem generally? No, we have the same cyber training as every other company does. I'm not sure how successful it is, but we keep doing it and and keep testing people and hope it gets better. But honestly, I think that like you're going to see a, a huge movement of people in this country that basically, you know, pursue microgrids, go off grid, do all the things that they need to do to try to become more resilient because of this, right? And I think like it, it it may not be a rational fear that they have, but I mean, I think it's going to cause a huge boom in these resiliency solutions. Ooh, microgrids are going to be the new blockchain. They're going to solve every problem. <laughs> That's right. Free electrons, folks, let's have them. Catherine, what's yours? Yeah, so in the 2019 State of the State Address, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said he was going to quadruple the offshore wind target to 9 gigawatts by 2035 and double the distributed solar deployment to 6 gigawatts by 2025 and deploy 3 gigawatts of energy storage by 2030. So that is pretty significant and shows an, an enormous amount of leadership, especially since he dragged his feet for a really long time on storage. And this is on the back of a report from Global Market Insight that says that the global lithium-ion battery market is expected to exceed $60 billion by 2024. So we're moving, guys. New York leading the charge. Um, I know Jigger has sparred with folks in New York, but, man, they, they keep on trucking. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I wanted to highlight a report that's made the rounds this week on uh, – uh, from, you know, led by Tufts University, uh, showing sort of, you know, underlying discrimination around where residential solar rooftop uh, units have been installed. I think the specific paragraph was that uh, researchers with Tufts University and the University of California, Berkeley, found that census tracts that are over 50% black or Hispanic have significantly less rooftop solar uh, than census tracts with no majority or that are majority white pointing to the equity implications of an unevenly developing solar industry. And, you know, I certainly, you know, I certainly resonate with what they're saying. And, you know, I think we all should take it very seriously. My sense that from digging into it is it's probably a lot more FICO score driven and the inherent biases of FICO scores. So we just have to find another bankable score to use. But uh, it's probably also around our marketing and which audiences we're really targeting and with our marketing dollars. For sure. I mean, FICO scores have been a brilliant standard to allow solar services to scale, but they have their limits for sure, and they block a lot of people out. Were there any other solutions that stood out for you or, or reasoning behind this problem? Yeah, the paper didn't really include any insights around the solutions. It was really more of just a, you know, here is what our findings show. And even if we control for income and control for some of these other pieces, we still see the disparity. And so I don't know that they've really gotten to the point of offering any solutions, but certainly a lot of folks online have chimed in with um, suggested solutions. And I think, you know, largely it's about, you know, being more intentional about targeting these communities and making sure that they're getting 
full uh, access to the products that we offer. Um, so mine is uh, a, a little preview of what's to come on our podcasts. You know, in our last show of 2018, I lamented that a lot of folks in consumer tech should be using their skills to move into clean tech or solve broader environmental challenges. And again, we have the smartest engineering minds in the world working on the most inconsequential problems. And I, along with a lot of other people, just find that so incredibly frustrating. And as soon as we released that episode, within about a day, I got like six or seven emails from folks saying, hey, I'm in consumer tech and want to figure out how to get a job and I listen to your podcast or the opposite. Hey, I transitioned into clean tech. I'm super passionate about this. I know other engineers who are doing the same thing. And uh, I'm, I'm collecting some of those stories. And I'm also talking to some other folks out there about career opportunities. And we're going to turn that into some kind of episode coming up. So be aware of that. Um, we've also, I've also gotten some emails from folks about raising money and Catherine has worked in private equity. Jigger, of course, has been working in renewable energy finance for a long time and has, has pioneered some of the financial instruments. And um, there's this real question about how do you get beyond venture capital? It's something that has been discussed for the last few years in clean tech, but now has found its way into broader discussions of how to fund companies generally. And more startups are choosing not to take traditional venture capital. So we're going to do an episode here on the Energy Gang about funding opportunities. We've yet to figure out exactly how we're going to structure that episode. But if you have some ideas and you want to, you have questions about, you know, how to raise money or what the best business model is, uh, or just general trends in finance and, and uh, venture capital, hit us up on Twitter and we'd be happy to answer some of your questions. Um, so that's that's what we've been thinking about, and we appreciate your feedback on some of this stuff, and we're going to have some really cool episodes on those topics that hopefully help many of you out in 2019. That sounds awesome. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from those. Well, you better, because you're going to be teaching a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the end of the show, folks. Remember to go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Give us a creative review for your chance to win a free one-year membership to GTM Squared. Uh, at the end of the month, we're going to come together and talk about our favorite entries on Apple Podcasts, and uh, we'll hook that person up with a year subscription to GTM Squared. Thanks for listening. Hit us up on Twitter with anything else you want us to discuss. We will catch you next week with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, produced by Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. We will catch you next week.